everybody, welcome back to the Insightful Thinkers Podcast. Scientists and philosophers have held for a long time that replicability, or independent researchers obtaining the same results from doing the same research design, is the hallmark of science. According to the Open Science Collaboration, reproducible research practices are at the heart of sound research and are integral to the scientific method. Stephen Broad goes so far as to say that replication is a criterion between science and non-science. Karl Popper said that non-replicable single occurrences are of no significance to science. Science values replication so much that as long as a study is sufficiently replicated, the claims it makes are considered valid even if these claims... uh, conflict with previous theories. Consider, for example, what happened in 1986 when the physicists Bernards and Mueller reported finding a material which acted as a superconductor at negative 238 degrees Celsius. Scientists around the world successfully replicated the effect, and Bed, Norris, and Muller were awarded with a Nobel Prize. But what they found actually contradicted the accepted theory at the time. And there's still no accepted theory that adequately explains the effects that they reported. But their results were valued because they were able to be replicated. And that won them the Nobel Prize, not because it matched a certain theory, but because their results were able to be replicated. And that's the brilliance of science, or so we think. Things aren't as accepted as truth just because everyone decides on accepting them as such. It's about multiple observations showing the same thing. We trust scientific findings then because experiments repeated under the same conditions produce the same results, or do they? In recent years, important findings have failed to replicate. So in other words, when researchers repeat the initial experiment using the same methods and same conditions, they're not obtaining the same results. So many are realizing that science isn't as impregnable as we previously thought. Daniel Sarowitz, for instance, claims that science is our one source of objective knowledge. It is in deep trouble, as much of this supposed knowledge is turning out to be contestable, unreliable, unusable, or flat-out wrong. It's a crisis, a replication crisis, because the failure rates of replications are alarming in the literature. This, of course, undermines the credibility of science, because replication, as we talked about in these quotes, is one of the key things that makes science objective. Without replications, science as a whole lacks trustworthiness and credibility. And this is the issue we're talking about today. Science isn't as... Is, isn't Uh, replicated as much as we may think. For the sources, please view the episode description. So let's start with the historical background of the replication crisis. It really started with uh, Daryl Bem's 2011 extrasensory perception studies. Bem showed in nine separate experiments that people have extrasensory powers to perceive the future. His paper was published in a prestigious psychology journal And although the finding persuaded very few scientists, the controversy engendered mistrust in the way psychologists conduct their experiments. Because BEM used the same procedures and statistical tools that many other social psychologists use. It was almost like he ran a series of troll experiments 
to show how flawed the statistical practices in psychology are. The Reproducibility Project uh, also found that only a third of findings in psychology replicate. This is around the same time as Bem turned up these nine experiments to show that people could perceive the future. He was using the same uh, methods that psychology uses, the same statistical test, and just to show that, hey, I can prove this thing based on uh, the tests we accept as valid in psychology. Amgen and Bayer, they came out with these healthcare reports too in the early 2010s. Scientists attempted to replicate 56 landmark preclinical trials and reported a replication rate of only 11%. Only six of the 56 results could actually be reproduced. Subsequent attempts at large-scale replications in clinical research have produced more optimistic estimates, but they routinely fail to successfully reproduce more than half of the published results. What authors call the replication crisis that we are talking about here, it started around 2010, but researchers have been voicing concerns about replica replicability long before this. As early as the late 1960s or early 70s, authors began to worry about the lack of replications in science. In the late 1970s, the journal Replications in Social Psychology was launched to address the problem of replication research and and that replications were hard to come by. But unfortunately, it went out of press after just three issues. In the 90s, studies reported that editors and reviewers were biased against publishing replications. So clearly, though, nobody paid too much attention. And now it's a full-blown crisis that we've known about for the past decade. What are the causes of this crisis? Well, the first one is there's a tendency for positive results to be overrepresented in the published literature. Scientific journals have a bias towards publishing studies that are successful. In other words, studies that confirm, where researchers confirm their hypotheses. Everything goes right. It matches our predictions. This bias is especially true towards studies that support a surprising hypothesis. Those ones get published at an even higher rate. Why do journals overrepresent positive results, you might ask? Why don't they represent negative results too? Well, journal editors feel pressure to ensure a competitive citation rate for their journals. Citation rate is just how much their journal is cited. The more your journal is cited, the more prestigious your journal is. So they believe that publishing too many studies with, with mundane negative results will cause less people to cite their journal and will reduce their readership. Overall, this produces misleading literature since all the failed studies that still were conducted correctly, but they failed in uh, confirming their hypotheses, don't get published. And only studies that confirm their hypotheses and, and, and were successful do. So all these failed experiments, even though they're still valid experiments, they don't get out there. But they, so all the replications that, uh, even if the replications show that, wait a minute, this first study that was so surprising, it's not really true. They don't get published. Only that first true one does. And this is why the replication crisis perpetuates. It skews the distribution in the literature towards studies where everything goes right. But there's more studies, but they're just not getting published. In line with this bias toward producing experiments that support their hypotheses, there's a bias toward publishing studies with large effect sizes. 
effect size is a measure of the relationship between two variables. So take, for instance, psychedelic therapy and depression. So there's a bias for publishing articles that show that psychedelic therapy, or just, this is just an example, has a large effect on depression, as opposed to studies that only show it has a small effect. So over time, if you read the big journals, or at least the most accessible ones, you may believe that psychedelic therapy has a bigger effect on depression than it really does, because those are the only articles that are accepted. All the other ones that are showing that it, it might not, are not accepted at such a high rate. Because the scientific literature is biased towards studies that report large effect sizes, there's less of a chance that findings can be replicated, since not all studies go so well for there to be large effect sizes. So the first study that shows psychedelic therapy has a large effect on depression, that one might get published. But then when people try to replicate it, they might get a smaller effect size. And because it has a smaller effect size, it doesn't get published. So these replications aren't getting published. Studies with small effect sizes that are difficult to publish and therefore uh, are, are, are more likely to appear in less accessible outlets. This is called the gray literature bias because the studies that don't have these big effect sizes, that don't have these surprising results, that don't confirm their hypotheses, they end up in only less accessible outlets like personal communications, PhD theses, or, or, or other things like this. This is an example of how the publication bias plays out. So scientist A does a bunch of experiments, but only the successful one gets published. Then a second scientist gets kind of interested in, in this cool study because only the cool one got published and only this new scientist is reading the uh, is reading the cool study. She doesn't know about all the failed experiments. So this scientist goes, gets interested and she conducts a series of replications. She also succeeds in only one of her attempts. And guess what? This is the only one that gets published too. After some time, the literature will contain a diverse set of studies that suggest that in that initial theory worked and, 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 and that it's a robust theory even though the initial experiment actually worked less times than it uh, didn't work. So scientist A, she only got her, uh, her, her study to work one out of three times, and scientist B only got hers to work one out of three times. But all we see in the literature is the two successful ones, and that's the way it goes. So this is the, how the publication bias plays out, and it causes these... Uh, causes science not to be as, as impregnable as we think. Another thing that causes the replication crisis is questionable research practices. Several studies have demonstrated that many research practices lead to the production of false positives. A false positive or the type 1 error is, for example, a man looking at his growing beer belly and he concludes that he's pregnant. This happens in research, not this egregious, but these are the false positives that occur. How does bad research practice, though, lead to non-replicable research? How does accepting these false positives too much lead to this? Well, engaging in these questionable practices, it inflates the false positive error rate in the published literature. And if less things in the literature are as true as they say, then they won't be able to be replicated. If that initial study is falling prey to these false positives and questionable practices, then guess what? When another scientist gets interested, 
they're not going to turn up with the same results because the first study was, was flawed and they were accepting these false positives. The reason for a lot of researchers accepting false positives is because they have a pressure to publish. And this pressure is now ubiquitous across academic institutions. Researchers often cannot afford to simply assign failed studies to the file drawer. So instead what they do, and these are the questionable research practices, they cherry pick results to make them significant. And this gets them back into the published literature. Another cause of the replication crisis is the reward system of science and the priority rule. This is the practice of only rewarding the first scientist who makes a discovery. This reward system discourages replication because journals aren't as likely to publish replication studies. While replication, as we mentioned, is often seen as a cornerstone of science's objective nature, direct replication studies are actually quite rare in the published literature. In psychology, for instance, this is shocking, Replication attempts constitute only 1% of the published literature. This lack of replication studies in the literature can be explained by the fact that many scientific journals have historically had explicit policies against publishing replication studies. Over 70% of editors from 79 social science journals said they preferred new studies over replications. And over 90% said they would discourage submission of replication studies. In addition, many science funding bodies fund only novel, original, and groundbreaking research. So this cornerstone of science that is replication isn't even coming through these days because journals just want to, I don't know if they want to catch headlines, but they want their studies to be cited. They want these successful studies to be in there, and they don't even encourage replication, even, if, even though it's the supposed cornerstone of science. We talked about BEM's 2011 paper where he reported empirical real evidence, by the way, based on the statistical methods we use today, for extrasensory perception, the ability to perceive the future. This paper was published in the High Impact Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Of course, the controversial nature of the findings inspired many replication studies. All of the three, though, failed to re reproduce BEM's results. The issue is that these replication studies were rejected from four different journals, including the original journal that BEM had published his study in, on the grounds that, oh, replications aren't original, they're not novel, so we can't accept it. So they only took this extrasensory perception one from BEM, a shocking result, then they didn't even accept the replications that maybe were more important in this case for such a, such a weird idea. This reward system also contributes to the production of non-replicable research because it exerts a high career pressure on researchers. Researchers need to fill their CVs with exciting, positive results to sustain and advance their careers. Because of this, they fall prey to questionable research practices and the confirmation bias, which is the tendency to seek out information that confirms your ideas rather than goes against them. And this, of course, produces the type of research that cannot be replicated. If the initial researchers are falling prey to the, uh, to the confirmation bias and accepting these false positives, then they're going to have a flawed study that can't even be replicated in the first place, even if people go and try. 
What can be done about this? Well, we could have journals dedicated to publishing non-significant results. The only issue is that all the journals created with this goal in mind have utterly disappeared. Negative results in biomedicine, Journal of Negative Observations in Genetic Oncology, Journal of Pharmaceutical Negative Results, all sorts of these journals, they all floundered in time. Since that didn't work so well, another option is to dedicate a space in traditional journals for negative results. So all of these normal journals, why don't you just grab a section? Well, several journals have adopted this strategy of just having a section for negative results to little effect. You could also have major journals impose a limit on the percentage of studies with positive results that could be accepted. So a journal could say, hey, yeah, we love positive results, but we're going to put a cap. Only 85% of our results are going to be positive. The rest are going to be negative results. You could also make the scientific process more transparent with open science. There's been quite the movement for this in recent times. It would make researchers share their experimental designs, their raw data, and the software that they use. Researchers could upload a public, time-stamped, and uneditable research plan before data is collected, and this would prevent them from tinkering with their data, or at least be exposed if they did, because it's all open now. No paywall, no nothing. So... This would create more sound studies in the first place, perhaps, because researchers would fear of being exposed because they're not following their plan that everyone can see. And it would create studies that are easier to replicate down the road because we hope that the results are, are, are more truthful. But even if something is easier to replicate, it still doesn't mean that people will have the desire to replicate it. For example, maybe all of the data and analyses are, are there for everyone to see. This open science, it's all great. But other researchers still might not seek to replicate it because they know that they might not get their results published even if they do replicate the study. And even if they do want to replicate the study, they might not even be able to get funding from a granting agency because agencies don't want to spend their money on research that's already been done. So you see the conundrum. You see what's perpetuating this replication crisis. Another option is registered reports. This is the most interesting one <clears throat> I came across. Registered reports shift the point at which peer review occurs. Usually peer review occurs after you've done your whole study then you submit your final manuscript, then they come back with edits, suggestions, and then you return another one. But the peer review, where other uh, researchers review your work, other experts in the field, this is another cornerstone of what makes science objective to. It's not just replication, but the peer review process where other researchers review your work uh, usually occurs after your work is done. But what we could do is we could shift the point at which this peer review occurs to combat publication bias against negative results. Publication decisions could be made just based on the intro methods and the planned analyses. If they get accepted based on this, then authors would have a defined period of time to carry out their research and submit their results. And if it's judged that they did carry out the, the plan that they made or they justified the deviations from them adequately, the journal will automatically honor its decision to publish, regardless of the outcomes, whether it's a negative or positive result. And this is really where I think science should go with this. I, maybe I'll look a little closer into this. We could have another episode on that. But 
because uh, it does seem like an, an, an interesting route that could change science. Science has a privileged position, not because it gives us truth right away, but because in the long run, it's supposed to correct its errors. Authors call this the self-corrective thesis. In the long run, the scientific method should refute false theories and find closer approximations to true ones. Though the self-corrective thesis is plausible, the issue is that most findings are never subjected to even one replication attempt. So although it's, it's all good, this, this idea of the self-corrective thesis that science corrects itself, how can it correct itself if no one's trying to replicate any studies and we're not following what makes science great? So on the surface, the replication crisis looks like nothing more than a chink in science's armor. But when we take a step back, we realize that it's science itself that's responsible for producing the studies that expose its own flaws. So the very fact that we have knowledge about the replication crisis may actually be a testament to the unapologetically objective nature of science. This podcast is a production of Insightful Thinkers Media.